bandwidth for JS Party is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. Welcome to JS Party, a weekly celebration of JavaScript and the web. Tune in live on Fridays at 3 p.m. U.S. Eastern at changelaw.com slash live. Join the community and Slack with us in real time. Head to changelaw.com slash community. Follow us on Twitter. We're at JS Party FM. And now on to the show. Hey, everybody. Welcome to JS Party, where it's a party every week with JavaScript. And uh, God, I love that intro music. I was just banging my head like Night at the Roxbury. It was great. Um, so I'm here with Alex Sexton. Say hello. Hi, everybody. It's me. And Rachel White. Say hello. Hello. <laughs> and uh, awesome. Today, we're going to talk about uh, some cool stuff that's going on with JavaScript. We're going to dig into WebAssembly. We're going to talk a bit about uh, Stanford and the kind of changing university landscape for learning programming languages and how JavaScript fits in. And uh, we're going to get into some lesser known uh, JS standards. So cool, everybody. Let's, let's dig into it. WebAssembly. Alex, tell me what this is. <laughs> WebAssembly is kind of a, a grandchild of the ASM stuff that was coming out a while ago. So for a while, everyone was like, hey, you, you can only write JavaScript in the browser. Um, and that was cool. And people would do things like write CoffeeScript that compile the JavaScript or do things like that. And then there's this like moment in time, uh, kind of once we got a few more primitives that uh, in, in Scripton came out and was able to compile pretty much anything that had LLVM type bindings or whatever down to JavaScript uh, into this really weird looking bad JavaScript that could run like C programs and like manage memory and do all that stuff like all within the JavaScript stack. Um, and if you've ever seen one of like uh, Brendan Ike's demos where he plays the video games as like killing chickens or anything like that. That was mscripting compiled, uh, compiling down like some game engine, which, uh, you know, at 60 frames per second uh, was unheard of prior to then. So WebAssembly uh, is people saying, hey, that's cool. And we all agree that that was cool, but that's a little silly at this point that it's JavaScript. Uh, we could kill some of the unnecessary parts that like people enjoy writing since it's just assembly and we can add in a lot more primitives that are nice to have but still keep much of the like core fundamental parts of the web like sandboxing and and all sorts of things and so is an approximation of the old javascript uh, assembly stuff asmjs uh, and stuff but now with its own actual subset of instructions and things like that uh, or superset of instructions um, and it's not in browsers and it may not take off and uh, blah 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 but it seems to have pretty good traction compared to any other project uh, that was similar to it so it could be really good for things like uh, encryption or very high performance or even some like binding type stuff so it should be interesting because people will finally be able to write in languages that aren't JavaScript and compile them down to WebAssembly rather than writing in JavaScript. So who, if, if this all like really happens and people start adopting it, who, uh, what kind of developer would it affect the most for adoption? I mean, definitely game developers would probably switch over to this. Um, I, I could actually see, like, if you think about how Canvas works or like WebGL or something like that, it's like, 
the DOM and JavaScript and all that kind of stuff provides this like web API that is very good for making websites. But once you break out of that, like you can go to Canvas and you start like literally just printing pixels in a grid and and like you're totally outside of accessibility and uh, selectors and all that kind of stuff. You've kind of just exited from the stack already. So people who are already exiting the stack to do things may find that they could write in a language uh, or in a platform that can compile to WebAssembly rather than uh, in, in a JavaScript environment that may provide them, or, or there may already be great tooling around d- doing those things. So the nice thing is that you can have parts of your code that are WebAssembly uh, and like say run them in a worker or something like that, and then still build out your uh, majority of your website and your interface and things like that in regular web everything. So you don't necessarily have to go all in WebAssembly or all out. So if you wanted to build a graphics editor or something like that, you can have the tough parts be written in WebAssembly and then still do the interface in normal human JavaScript or whatever. Oh, that's pretty rad. I like that uh, it's giving people more options to create more things. Um, I, I saw that one of the other things that we have to talk about is getting started with WebAssembly and Node.js. But if somebody, uh, I guess we could just talk about that next. <laughs> um, but if uh, aside from getting started with it in Node.js, uh, are there any other options that either of you know of for somebody that wanted to like take a deeper dive into this and try it out? Well, even in Node, it's actually behind a flag right now. So, you know, the first thing in, in this uh, this article about getting started with WebAssembly, it's like, run Node with this crazy flag that exposes WebAssembly. And it's still, I, I think it's still a bit of a moving target in terms of the implementations that exist right now. Um, Alex, do you know if like Chrome and Firefox are doing it out from under a flag or if you have to run them in a special mode to play with it or what? Yeah, I don't, I don't actually know. I've never run any WebAssembly. Uh, maybe that makes me a bad spokesperson for it, but um, my my guess is that you have to run it with a flag. Like usually, Chrome doesn't um, turn on like non default features in in V8. So correct. You probably have to run it with some kind of flag to really play with it today. I think that you know one of the announcements that they just put out on their list is that they feel that the current spec is ready for all the browsers to implement and uh, actually expose. So that's like a sign from the spec community that they think that it's it's stable enough, and now we need you know people to start exposing it to the world. Um, but that means that it's probably not there quite yet for people to play with. Yeah, um, it, it's it's a pretty weird thing. So like Google has tried this on its own before. Like with uh, what was it, Knackle and Pnackle uh, and and all that stuff, uh, just like sandboxing C code or whatever. And so this is different than that because there's a compile target and stuff like that. But kind of the the platforms that currently use things like this are pretty different than the web. And so a lot of the challenges were around like browsers don't all run the same version and they're they're versionless essentially, like the web just kind of updates as it goes. And so you have to just, everything old has to continue to work for a very long time. And then you can only add new stuff and, and like the APIs need to be open and everyone needs to be able to implement them and they need to work across platform. So a lot of challenges. Um, so I'd be very interested to see a, like the benefit over like, uh, I'm sure they have some, some benchmarks I haven't seen, but just like here's an ASM compiled thing versus a, Wasm, I think, uh, web assembly versus assembly JS, like 
how much do like the the primitives and stuff that are added to to this stack help and then what's like the i don't know what the fallback story is like how do you do you compile to wasm and asm.js and then like the if you don't have WebAssembly, it gets kind of falls back to asm.js do you like that makes sense so yeah i mean i think that we should back up a little bit and explain asm.js a little bit more Sure. And and so there, there's some other history here too. So I think that we can also explain this in the context of of Brendan Ike's uh, concerns. We'll say with WebAssembly, he's he's a WebAssembly fan, but he has some concerns about it. Um. So for a long time, people have been trying to put other VMs in the browser, and for a long time, people thought that Java was going to win, and Java would be the language of the web. Um. You know, Microsoft tried to put in .NET. Um. All of the efforts to basically have a separate runtime in the browser have have failed. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that like JavaScript is, you know, the dominant language of the web and it sits there with the DOM interface in the same memory space, essentially. Mm -hmm. So you run into this problem when you add another VM where like, you know, how do you garbage collect these things that, that might be touching the same DOM between these different languages? How do you, you know, how do you effectively, you know, share memory or share objects between them and, and, and count them properly? Right. Um, so a lot of the, the, the natural stuff that you were talking about and some of the other kind of native sandboxing work that's happened has been, you know, here's a separate interpreter and and we'll, we'll try to run it beside JavaScript, right? They, they also tried this with Dart, which was like a colossal failure. Sure. But, <laughs> but essentially all of that has never really worked because you, you just can't really share them effectively. Um, and so what ASM.js really was, was, was uh, a, a group of people, I think primarily uh, people at Mozilla. Mozilla. Yep. Yeah, tr trying to prove that, you know what, if we, if we take a subset of JavaScript, like literally valid looking like valid javascript that we'll interpret but we say just a subset of it and we we put a comment in it similar to use strict and we say like this is asmjs land it will interpret and fall back in all these other browsers and it'll work as normal javascript but because we have that little comment in there and because it's using the strict subset we can write some stuff inside of the jit inside of the regular javascript interpreter that makes this really fast right but there are a lot of v8 people that disagree with that pretty heavily Right. So there, there were V8 people that disagreed with that approach, but what they essentially did was that they made their interpreter really fast for all of the use cases, including that very small subset. Right. They just didn't need the the comment. They were just like, why don't we just always make those fast and detect them? Right, right, right. So, so yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, that was a, that was why you started to see, you know, ASMJS benchmarks from V8, even though V8 wasn't quote unquote supporting ASMJS right. because ASMJS is just a subset of JavaScript. So WebAssembly is trying to go a little bit farther. It's, it's saying, you know, there was a limit to what we could do with ASMJS. So why don't we come up with, you know, a, a, a like a very small language that can be a target for compilers, but it can work inside of the same JavaScript VM. We're still only going to ship one VM, but we have this other language that is a lower level compile target that people can can push stuff into. Right. I did some digging just now while you're talking, and they the suggestion is that you can ship a WASM implementation and then also ship an uh, ASMJS fallback. So if your browser doesn't support WebAssembly, then you can fall back to ASMJS. Um, and if your browser doesn't support ASMJS, it will just fall back to running that as JavaScript. And and then also I, I dug up uh, the flag uh, is only in Chrome Canary, not in like the other things. And it's uh, flags enable WebAssembly in Firefox nightly. It's in the about config. And then there are only like preview 
versions of Microsoft Edge, and then Safari just has like their we think we'll support it in the future type status page, but no one's ever seen it. Right, right. So I, I think coming back to to kind of Brendan's concerns, right, is that um, he, he's pulling a lot on the history of JavaScript here and on the history of like people trying to compete with JavaScript. But there there have been many groups and different browser vendors and, and VM implementers that have decided at some point that they just don't like JavaScript anymore. This, this happened in like the main V8 team. And this is why they eventually went off and did Dart. They just decided that like bleh, JavaScript. Um, and a lot of like there are a million reasons to get mad at JavaScript and kind of table flip. Um, but at the end of the day, like it is the language of the web and we need to continue to make sure that it's like fast and that, that it is the kind of reference point uh, for the web. His concern with WebAssembly is that if, if it gets entrenched enough, he worries that vendors will start to view JavaScript as just another language that, you know, compiles to run in the WebAssembly VM. And and that is a recipe for basically degradation and performance. Yeah. yeah. If uh, every major website isn't using JavaScript, then it will be deprioritized as something that people improve and make better or whatever, for sure. We are so far away from that, though. <laughs> you know, yeah. Really yeah. Um, yeah. And and I, I think also, I mean, like, you know, this opens up the possibility of a lot of people creating a lot of different languages that compile down to WebAssembly that then run in the browser. That is all true. Um, but the performance of those languages is not going to be as good as JavaScript. Um, a lot of what the JavaScript VM does is optimized specifically for that language. And WebAssembly is giving you these really low-level primitive tools. But it's it's not, you know, once you work on this higher order language and you need some of these higher order optimizations like we do for JavaScript, you're, it's going to be very difficult to do those just on top of WebAssembly without WebAssembly specific optimizations for your language, which are probably not going to happen. Right. Yeah, for, for a hot second. Right. right. Well, I mean, yeah, I, I, I struggle to even see a future where that's viable for an alternative like like if you wanted to run Ruby on top of WebAssembly. I definitely see it for like you were saying, WebGL and Canvas and, and people who want these lower level abstractions for, say, doing math, they're probably going to get a lot of um, a lot out of the optimizations because they can work at that really low level and they don't need a lot of higher order like um, dynamic optimizer. Right. Yeah, I guess as a counterpoint rather than what I mean it is like you can run any language on your server and lots of people still choose to run Node. So even if other languages are good choices for parts of things that I, I don't think like it's a JavaScript killer just because now you have the choice of your language if it compiles to WebAssembly. Does that make sense? Right. Like, yeah, like people already choose JavaScript on purpose. Um, and so <laughs> <laughs> unless uh, some language can compete with that. And, and look, obviously, there are languages that are they're good for different things. But until that fact goes away, I don't, I don't think we're really in danger of kind of losing JavaScript as as a primary language on the web. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. I, pe people love to hypothesize that the JavaScript will go away, but I, I think honestly, those people are are just too smart for their own good. Like they're they're not thinking about how accessible and easy JavaScript is to use as a language, and that's why it continues to get picked for all this stuff. They're just jealous. <laughs> well, well, I, I think that in the future, and, and this will sound contradictory, but we'll see both more languages being used and more JavaScript being used. Right. <laughs> and, and by that, I mean, like, there will continue to be these niches that are like what, much better suited for a different language where people will use them. But the, the predominant kind of default language will continue to grow as JavaScript. Cool. 
while you two were going super in depth as to what is going on, I was reading more of Lynn Clark's awesome uh, cartoon intro to what makes like WebAssembly WebAssembly and what is it? And if anybody else doesn't know what the hell it is like me, you should go read it because it's really good. And it also makes comparisons in a really easy to understand way. So I think that diagrams are great. And Lynn explains it very accessibly. Yep. And I, I really like I haven't had a chance to really dive into it yet, but there is a module spec in WebAssembly as well. Um, so I'm going to have to dive into that and see <laughs> what that means. Well, I think I think what that refers to is trying to hook into the JavaScript module system to where you can just import like just like you would JavaScript, you would just do import blah from WebAssembly file. Um, and, and maybe I'm thinking of something different, but, but that is a, a primary goal. But since like none of that is actually like fully specced out even for the web it, with regular JavaScript, it's kind of just like a placeholder right now. Yeah, I mean, it, it's definitely a lot simpler than the than the ES6 module spec. Um but because it's so much simpler, I actually have a harder time figuring out how it fits into that spec. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think what I'm saying, though, is that like you can use WebAssembly as if it was a JavaScript file, as long as you provide an external API. So like it fits with inside the JavaScript one, or at least it's a goal. Right, right. There's an export and import system and stuff like that. Cool. Okay. Um, we're probably ready to move on to the, the next topic pretty soon. And uh, when we come back, we'll talk a bit about JavaScript in higher education. First sponsor of the show today is our friends at Rollbar. Put errors in their place with Rollbar. Easily get set up your application. NPM install dash dash save. Rollbar. That'll get you set up with Rollbar's notifier. You also need an account, so go to rollbar.com slash changelog. Sign up, get the bootstrap plan for free for 90 days. With Rollbar's full stack error monitoring, you get the context, the insights, and the control you need to find and fix bugs faster. No more relying on users to report your errors, digging through log files to debug issues, or dealing with a million alerts in your inbox, ruining your day. Once again, rollbar.com slash changelog. Sign up, get the bootstrap plan for free for 90 days. And now back to the show. All right. Uh, so what we're going to get into now is, is a bit about JavaScript and uh, how we teach computer science and in higher education like universities. So Stanford announced that uh, their CS106 course, which I don't know the significance of that, but apparently it is significant. It sounds very early on in the it sounds like the first course you take at Stanford for programming language. So so basically, when you first sit down and learn programming, they are getting off of Java and onto JavaScript. Um, so that's great. So now instead of, you know, learning about crazy Java interfaces, they can learn about prototypal inheritance and then never use prototypal inheritance when they get jobs. Yeah. Um, no, I'm kidding. Anyway, uh, it, it'll work really well for all of those terrible interview questions about how prototypal inheritance works. But yeah, no, th this is like a bigger deal than I originally kind of like glanced in that, you know, it's, it's been like a decade that they've been teaching Java and um, there's some really good um, quotes in here from, from this uh, professor Roberts, who's, who's kind of, you know, running this whole transition, but you know, he says Java came out in 1995 and it's really stabilized, but you know, they thought that 
it was going to be the language of the internet. And that was definitely how Java was sold, especially like in the late nineties, early two thousands, this was, you know, the language of the internet. It was going to replace, you know, JavaScript on the web. It was going to run on every device. It was, yeah, runs right once run everywhere. That was literally the slogan. It was right once run everywhere. And, um, yeah, that didn't happen. So <laughs> he notes that this is not the language of the internet, actually, and that JavaScript kind of won that. And so they're they're working to transition their 106 stuff over to JavaScript. Yeah, that's great. Uh, I can tell you as someone who has a computer science degree who did Java in his first two uh, classes that I spent 50% of my time like understanding Java, which is fine. Like if you're learning Java, you should try to understand like the primitives and all that stuff. And then the other 50% of the time trying to run Java and set up my environment to the point where I could run Java. Uh, so like the ease of getting started with JavaScript is uh, like, if you just want to write JavaScript without compiling to anything or whatever, and you're just doing programs for school and like they say it just must run and run in latest Chrome or something like that. Like instantly, everybody already has the environment um, to run that. And that's just beautiful to me because it, it would have saved most of my headaches. And none of those headaches had anything to do with me like actually learning how to program. Um, it was all just like, go see the TA to see if he can get your idea instance running against the correct uh, Java C compiler in your windows my I, of course i had an alienware laptop probably <laughs> so yeah. i'm actually wondering if this is going to help the students be able to debug things better because i do i do run a lot of hackathons and well not run i work a lot of hackathons and have to help the students whenever they run into issues and they're always using like Python or Java and they just don't know how to fix errors. I'm wondering if them being able to do JavaScript and having it be a little bit easier to, you know, stack trace stuff, if it's going to, if they're going to teach that even, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, the tooling we were given uh, in my class had like, some of this built into like the editor we were supposed to use but the ease of use of dev tools it isn't amazing there are still plenty of people i see just like alert debugging or whatever still but the ease of use of dev tools is certainly easier than like running a like strace against some native uh program that you're like like the tooling has accidentally become much more accessible so i, I think you're absolutely right that debugging could be a skill that accidentally benefits from this well, and, and even to get to debugging, you have to run your program and running your program in Java. Like it just, sure. it just, oh, ah, it's like 20 minutes to get the VM spun up and da da da. Yeah. Like it's, it's not really made for that kind of quick turnaround time. I think that like between say Node.js and Python, um, there's not a huge difference. And I mean, there is a big difference in startup time if we're talking about like microservices, but um, for development and kind of workflow, you know, they both run relatively quickly compared to to Java. And this is why, you know, Java developers have these like giant IDEs that are sort of like trying to run their code while they're writing it so that they don't have to, you know, try to run it on a, on a command line and see if it failed or not. Sure. So it's just a completely different and much faster and, and quicker to get to an error debugging mode for JavaScript and, and Python. And in, in terms of like the hackathons, when you get an error, you can Google it and get a pretty good answer and understand what's going on with both JavaScript and Python. Yeah. Whereas Java, depending on 
the framework that you're using or whatever kind of IDE or like, there's a lot of code that ends up in the tracebacks that make it kind of hard to find what the actual error is and Google around for it. Yeah. The debugging by Googling for, for Java is just a lot more difficult than um, <laughs> other languages. Back when I was in school, uh, we I'd have a problem and I hit a bug and you search for the bug. This is true of like PHP back then too, but you know, I'm an old man now. But you'd search for the bug and you wouldn't find someone solving it. You'd find a web page that's their like contact form returned that error as the page or whatever. <laughs> it had been indexed, uh, but it was actually just an instance of the error occurring, not uh, not a solution to your problem. Um, <laughs> unrelated to that, uh, one thing I'd be interested in is how much it matters like that people start with a dynamic non-typed uh language or whatever like i i feel like i'm in no way a purist when it comes to functional programming or uh type languages like i pretty much think that you can jit your way out of all of those problems a lot of the times and that like typing is often overhead that i don't want or need but like the fact that i was forced to do types means that i had kind of that option if i want if, if i come across a use case for it so I wonder if like they should do TypeScript or Flow or, or at least for some of their projects, like, all right, run Flow on, on this one and, and type all of your different things. Just like kind of like it's I almost see it as a feature that because of Flow and TypeScript, JavaScript is almost at this point optionally typed. So I think it'd be really good. And, and I don't know if they're up on their JavaScript enough to kind of know this, but maybe really solid of them to say like, all right, do this one functionally like JavaScript is flexible and like do this one purely functionally now do this one types now do this one uh however you want like those types of things kind of excite me as if if i was writing the curriculum but something tells me it's not going to be quite that uh intense but but I, but i like it from from that stand it's both scary from that standpoint if they don't cover that stuff but also cool if, if they do I, I'm actually reading deeper into this, and they're revising uh, multiple of their CS courses. And one of them that they offer is computer science and social good, which is kind of rad. So they let the students see practical applications of what they'll be making so they can get a better insight into what they'll experience once they leave school and actually start a development career, which is really great. It's California. Oh, come on. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm not hugely surprised at this move just because I know, um, I've heard of you know like Faros Abukadija who does WebTorrent. Uh, he went to Stanford and he's been back to do random kind of stuff with students there. I know that Guillermo Rausch, who created Socket.io, um, has done some I, I think like additional like summer courses or something there, like help them with teaching and stuff like that. So yeah, they're not even the first major university to teach JavaScript as its a core language. Uh, some there are some very big ones that already do this. But I think the Stanford name, especially in the Valley, kind of sticks out as as interesting. Yeah. To to come back to your typing point, though, I, I just, uh -oh. so now, now we can have like a proper argument. No, um, no, no. I, I just want to say, like, I, I come from a background like I, I learned lower level languages before I learned higher level languages. And right. the people that I know that come from that background are not the people that are asking for types in JavaScript. It's it's mainly like the people that turn into type advocates are people that learn dynamic programming and then they they see typing as some kind of solution to some problem. Like I don't know anybody who used to write assembly in C who's writing JavaScript now going, 
you know what I really miss? I miss type errors. Type errors were rad. Like I, I just don't know those people. <laughs> I've never met well, them. I, I know a lot I of people. Uh, I think people kind of avoid you sometimes. So maybe <laughs> face here. But I know plenty of people who feel very strongly about types and have their good reasons. And uh, and like, I don't necessarily agree with them, but I think it's silly to write off types as like a thing that people don't need to learn. Because absolutely, like if you're going to if you're getting a CS degree, like only some certain percentage of those people are going to end up writing JavaScript. Some large percentage of them are going to end up working in typed languages. And so. I feel like the experience that I had in school when I did, I mean, we used Haskell and Scheme and uh, Java and, and, and C++ and a bunch of stuff. But I feel like the fact that I got that experience in a type language means that when my company decides like, hey, we're going to use Flow, like, that's fine. I understand types or whenever I like whenever the web dies in two years uh, <laughs> again, I think it's I think we're due for the web being dead. Then I can go like right um you know elm or, or whatever is is cool um in native ios uh platform or, or whatever and and have types well when you learn a dynamic language you learn about types you just don't learn about uh, kind of static typing right like you, yeah. you have to you know what a string is you know what an array is you know that they're different you know that and then you also have to learn these coercion semantics right yeah but like you don't learn about function overloading or like uh pattern matching on arguments or like there's a but there's a whole mm -hmm. world uh, around types that i think is worthwhile to learn even if you don't agree that you want to to be doing that for your types of programs i think types catch a lot of errors that i don't have or that mm -hmm. bubble up anyways like if i send the wrong type to most of my functions they will throw an error uh, they just do it in runtime. Uh, and as long as you test, then most of the time you can catch those if you have good coverage. And so like types have dubious value there. But also, I mean, at Stripe, we use Flow against a huge portion of our React code bases. Mm -hmm. And we get like very free, good documentation um, out of that. Like we, here are, here's a component, here are all the props, here are the types of the props. Here's a little like, generated component builder to where it'll give you, you know, like the drop downs or the text boxes to fill in the props and then you can preview exactly what things will look like all without running any code and i think like types enable some very beautiful things outside of just like build time checking of like enforcement of types um and so whatever like people should learn types if they're getting a cs degree like regardless of whether they <laughs> yeah i think you should you should um, kind of explain a little bit more about flow type and uh, flow type in particular, but also kind of the differences with TypeScript and traditional typing, because it, it is a very new approach to typing. I don't think that I've seen the flow type thing in any other language or any other tool chain before. Um, and it, it, I, I actually really like this approach to both learning how types work and where they can be used. And also, um, this very kind of iterative additive value mode rather than kind of an all in or all out mode. Sure. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, so flow type and TypeScript are both kind of supersets of JavaScript that you can write code in. So you write almost exactly what job, regular JavaScript, but then you might add little type definitions in the code. And flow and TypeScript are, like, are functionally equivalent. They, they have differences and different uh, trade-offs and things like that. But they are essentially an optionally typed addition to JavaScript. One, one major difference is that TypeScript allows you to fully 
I, actually, I think Flow allows this now, but uh, they, they both kind of allow you to fully externally type things. So you can actually just reference code from a separate type file and say, like, this function over there is this. So you actually don't even have to uh, mark up your code any differently. But there are compilers to where if you want to say, uh, like, here's a function, and the first argument is list of people, and that is the type array where the elements are strings, uh, an array of strings. And then the next element is a Boolean, whether you want them to do something. Um, and, and so you can have these little type definitions inside your code, and then whenever you call a function somewhere else in your code and you send a string to the place where it expects a Boolean, before you ever run your code, these little checkers, um, you, you know, you can npm run flow, and it'll check to make sure that everywhere that you're using an API, you're sticking to the types that um, you do it. But the, the the coolest thing about it is that you can optionally enforce it. So you can say, this little section of our code is really important that people use it correctly, and this section isn't. And so we have flow here, we don't have flow here. Um, you could technically run like TypeScript and flow in the same project because it's all kind of compiled down to JavaScript, type thing, you know, much like WebAssembly uh, or ESNext or any of these things that we talk about kind of the fundamental property of the web that like everything can run on current browsers and, and everyone kind of agrees to that, we end up in this situation where a lot of things are optional and could be done to parts of code bases. And so different teams at Stripe use flow to different degrees and to different like uh, levels of kind of requiredness. Um, one thing that flow and TypeScript add to your experience though is generally better editor like IDE environments, TypeScript especially because Microsoft is Microsoft makes TypeScript, Facebook mostly makes Flow. The TypeScript bindings uh, into their Visual Studio Code editor are very very strong because Microsoft has had years and years and years of experience writing uh, strongly typed editor things to where you can refactor every location of a call to some API or jump to different areas or automatically generate things um, and get code hints and all sorts of things because of the types. And and the the flow bindings in Atom or whatever are pretty good as well, but uh, probably not as uh, polished as the TypeScript ones. Yeah, if, if you look through uh, Visual Studio Code, it, it basically comes with these type definitions for not just like all of Node Core, but for most common NPM modules like request or express and stuff like that. And so they, they define the whole API there so that you can um, get all kinds of crazy, nice editor stuff. Yeah, there's a uh, open source project. I'm blanking on the name. It might be like typed or something like that, or flow typed, or I, I don't know. There's there's ones for each um, of the of the things, and and so there are open source libraries that don't use uh, the type languages. But whenever you kind of in integrate a third party library, you want the types for that. And so all they do is they maintain actually a third party type definitions for popular libraries. So uh, some the the actual team does, the, the node bindings and some of the most popular modules. But there's actually an open source thing where you can submit the types for a library that you don't run and just say like, hey, these might be helpful to someone. And so at Stripe, since we use Flow and we use some third party things, we can also pull in someone else's third party type definitions of that. And then whenever we use that library, we get all of the like niceties from it. So th there was a, a lot of arguments for a long time about adding types to the language. Um, and we've pretty much given up on that. Um, yeah, I think that's dead because of these. 
It's not well. I mean, it was dead when ES4 died. Those died. Um, I mean, it has come up several times since then. But yeah. since these have come out, people are like, "This is good enough." Like everyone thinks that. Like even like with TypeScript, you can actually compile down to faster than JavaScript stuff with Asm.js, right? Because sometimes you have types that you can do better than the regular JIT with. Yeah, I mean, so so one of the the arguments that VM implementers like to have about types is that they can make the VMs much faster if they know what the types are. Um, right. But now we're seeing this this case where actually, you know, tools are better at optimizing this kind of stuff than people are. So you know, if you have things like like flow type and TypeScript, um, we we can actually write tools that then turn into even better JavaScript code that can hit all these hot code paths uh, depending on the types. I I personally like types much better for documentation and people related benefits uh like ides and stuff like that much more than i like it for safety and speed uh it seems like every time we think something about safety and speed is true with types someone on the v8 team uh shows us that we're wrong Uh, and and like i think that's a what i just said is incorrect please don't send me hate mail but uh, but, like, it's it's true, except sometimes it's the Firefox team. Sometimes it's right. also the Spider Monkey people. Right. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I th- I think we're about ready uh, to have another break now. So right after the break, when we come back, we're gonna get into the the feature project of the week uh, and some of our picks. We'll be right back. Our friends at Top Tower, longtime supporters of ChangeLog. If you've ever had to quickly scale your team, you know how hard it is. You have to go through all this hassle of writing job descriptions, adding them to your website, or maybe you have to hire somebody just to go out there and find the candidates for you. That's a lot of work, a ton of work that you don't have to do if you call my friends at TopTile. They do all the work for you to find the right candidates for your positions. Plus, because they have a very rigorous screening process to identify the best, you know you're only getting qualified candidates for your open positions. Head to TopTile.com to learn more. That's T-O-P-T-A-L.com. Tell them Adam from the ChangeLog sent you. If you'd like a more personal introduction, email me, adam at changelog.com. And now back to the show. All right. So uh, let's get into the featured projects. So I I actually, I cheated and I threw in two featured projects um, for this because I I really want to talk about some of the lesser known, um, for lack of a better term, JS standards. These aren't like standards in standards bodies, but these are standard APIs that inside of the JavaScript ecosystem for both Node and the browser, we we have these little APIs that act as glue between, you know, a bunch of higher level stuff and a bunch of lower level stuff. So today um, I have two projects. One is called Abstract Blob Store and one is called uh, Abstract Chunk Store, I believe. I lost my notes. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, Abstract Chunk Store. So the, the, these are by uh, uh, Max Ogden and Matthias Boos and, and they're wait, building out wait, a bunch wait, of stuff. Wait, wait, wait. Yep. You're talking about storage and you lost mm-hmm. the information? <laughs> yes, exactly. Okay. Just double checking. It's eventually consistent, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> oh, I can I can throw database jokes all day. Um, yeah, so the the idea here Let's is Let's catch that, that idea for now. Uh, all right. I'll <laughs> Okay. Anyway, um you're just way throwing me off today. With, with <laughs> <laughs> I, I should have known not to go toe to toe with puns with uh, with Alex. That that was a huge mistake. Um, 
anyway, so we we have these two libraries, Abstract Lobster and Abstract Transfer, by Matthias Booth and Max Ogden, um, and they work on on the DAP project. So they're doing a lot of kind of open science, open data stuff, and they're storing a lot of stuff all the time. Explain the DAP project. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. They both work on the DAP project. Explain that to me. So DAT is a is a small tool. Ch- well, I guess it's kind of growing in terms of ecosystem, but it, it's a tool chain for open scientists to to share data and to manipulate data and then share those manipulations. Um, you can think of it like like Git, but for data and for um, kind of open science. And to, to be honest, Max has been working on a way to get people to share data um, and their manipulations of data since like 2008, 2009, um, and and continue to like you know try to build stuff that was higher level and eventually I think figured out that what was really missing, you know, he wanted GitHub for data, but you need Git first before you can have GitHub. And so data is basically Git for data. Sure. Yeah. It it wants to make people collaborate with sharing data more too. It's a part of, I think they have a Knight Foundation grant too. So they do a bunch of cool stuff. Yeah. they, They actually have a bunch of grants. Yeah, you, you can you can go to the RFC podcast uh, on the Changelog Network, and uh, there's a podcast on on request for commits with Max where he talks about the grants and how to get them and how to grant fund open source. Oh, that's awesome! Max actually was clean shaven when he started on the DAT project, and he said once people finally adopted it, he would shave and look where we are. He's he's not shaved. He's, <laughs> he's got a big beard. <laughs> Yeah, but uh, yeah. It's anyway. So, so to come back to these kind of lesser known node standards, these are like really cool, really powerful stuff that developers can can work with. Because you know, if you just want to say store chunks of data somewhere, you you could just pick up a library for S3 or you know for the exact kind of storage mechanism that you want. But if you want to future proof your code a little bit, or if you want to expose a module to do something um, to, to do this behavior and you don't want them to necessarily require it to run in something like S3, you can use abstract blob store um, or abstract chunk store depending on your kind of use case. And and then you know that the actual underlying storage mechanism is completely abstract and people can throw in their own. So this is like, a, this is a really, really good way to build out um, an ecosystem of, of good modules that are storing data without locking them into a particular vendor or service provider or a local file system even. How does it compare to something that we already have like index DB or something like that? Is it the, the primitives are different? Well, so it, it's a little bit lower level than IndexedDB, although I think that's the, uh, not the right term. It it is it's doing a lot less than IndexedDB because it's not doing um, any kind of sorting. It's not you know actually indexing anything, right? It's just storing. Is it persistent? Yes, yes. Well, you, you, okay. yeah, you assume that abstract blob store is persistent, but there there is a set and a get. And you know when you set something, you you assume that you'll be able to get it later. Um, but you know some of these are in. How async is it? Well, and I mean, some of these are actually in memory as well, right? So they don't persist indefinitely. Um, some of them don't. Okay. But but I, I think that there actually is a, a good corollary here with IndexedDB. So in the Node.js ecosystem and also um, it, it now in the browser with, with stuff like PouchDB, you know, these aren't actually, these tools aren't built to IndexedDB. They're actually built to what's called abstract level down or, or level up. Um, so... 
the whole kind of level DB ecosystem built these kinds of abstract standards really early on so that, you know, if you were relied on level up for your, um, you know, set get and, uh, for your, for your, for all the stuff that you would do with index DB or with level DB, if you relied on level up, you could actually swap out the underlying level up implementation. And so people wrote some in the memory and people wrote them that work in the browser and people wrote them that work on top of local storage and SQLite. And so, Eventually, uh, PouchDB actually moved over to level to level up, so yeah, that they could. I was going to ask. Yeah, yeah. So, so that they could like take advantage of all those underlying data stores. Cool, cool stuff. Uh, have there been any cool demos or anything like that, or is it just mostly early days? Or what's up? Um, I, I think like these standards end up getting buried in in the things that people are actually building, right? Like, you know, there's some really cool um, IPFS demos, right? And IPFS uses abstract blob store um internally and and abstract stuff and in fact there's there's an ipfs abstract blob store that they expose to everybody else too so you can use that as an as an upper level storage mechanism but even the underlying storage mechanisms where they store their internals also uses this abstract store so those are those are some good examples but yeah i think that the the biggest demo of all this stuff is probably the dat project and, and the stuff that they're building cool um, I'd say I think they'd get more traction if they didn't name it Abstract Blob Store. <laughs> Probably true. Uh, I'm thinking like Ultra Ultra Store. That's pretty good. <laughs> Honestly, well, I think yeah, yeah. I, I think that um, they're not. You know, the, the thing that really gets traction is you know the thing that's built like right on top of this, right? Like like Level Up got a ton of traction. And, um, you know, because of that traction, a lot of people implemented abstract level down stores, even though it was called abstract level down. <laughs> abstract level down. Although level down it, in itself is actually a pretty clever name, right? Because. Sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, that was that was quick. <laughs> yeah, sure. Thanks for down there. That was good. Now we can really spend, I think, a lot of time on our individual picks. So. Um, why don't we get into to our individual picks for the week? I'll start since I think uh, Rachel might be having some connectivity issues. Uh, um, but mine isn't super long since I already kind of talked about it. Um, mine's going to be uh, the flow dash typed. It's like uh, past tense flow typed. And it's, uh, it's a repo uh, that lots of people commit to. Uh, and it has uh, the flow type definitions for like, uh, it looks like over maybe 100 something open source projects, Backbone, Bluebird, Promises, Request, uh, Chalk, Chai, all these different things that you probably use. Uh, so this allows you to kind of like immediately jump into flow in your code, even though you might not have done any of it uh, on your end. So you can literally just pull in flow, not type anything of yours, and then use an editor that can handle this stuff, Atom, plus there, there's some uh, flow integrations in Atom that are pretty good. And then instantly, like once you start typing stuff around, like the express bindings that you pulled in or the request bindings, like you'll start getting, you know, function argument completion and, and all that stuff, like without you doing anything. So this project alone could get you better editor experience for things that you know the least because like there's something you didn't write. And then maybe it'll save you some time, like looking up documentation, uh, I assume Lodash is in here. Let me check to make sure. Yeah, Lodash v4 is in here. So if you, like me, can't ever remember all the different things in Lodash, <laughs> it would be uh, like a really great thing to, to 
just like add this one thing and then instantly you have like type definitions for every single lodash function uh every time you try to write write one i think that's uh super nifty uh also a fun fact uh, that i forgot to mention earlier is that uh flow the actual thing that runs to check your code and and find the different types and find the bugs in your your type is written in ocaml which is uh my vote for what Stanford should use as their uh, default language that they teach. But uh, we, uh, one of the guys uh, on my team found a bug in uh, in the invitation of Flow, and he wanted to fix it. And so he had to like learn how to run OCaml and get an environment set up and submit a patch that way. And I, I just thought it was very funny because I didn't know people liked OCaml until very recently. <laughs> Apparently people that are really into typing like oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm looking at the request definition in here and it it's really funny because so many of the request um functions are like take dynamic arguments like they'll take different types and then do yeah, different massively things. overloaded. Yeah. Right, right, right. So so there's all of these like declare any, declare any types <laughs> all over the yeah. place. It's pretty funny. At least you get you would still get the name in your like autocomplete stuff so even though it wouldn't give you like this must be an array but yep. uh, it'll still give you useful things even just with the any's so it's not not the end of the world yep. rachel are you back i'm here you go first though <laughs> <laughs> okay i'll uh yeah i'm gonna bring up um offline camp actually so um there's this this great little community uh which is it's called offline first um but they're really handling a lot more than just kind of offline web use cases um it's a lot of the people from the hoodie community and and pouchdb and stuff like that but they're really digging into you know not just what offline but what it looks like with fuzzy internet and what you need to deal with with peer to peer web and you know there's a lot of overlap in all these use cases so there's this you know new community that the organizers of the community have just been phenomenal they've just been doing a great great job kind of organizing and documentation and getting people involved and that's included these these little um, offline camp events which are really small really intimate and you kind of go off and stay um, in some house or mansion that they've rented somewhere um, because of that like it, it's a really limited number of people um, so this one that's happening in Berlin in late April early May is only you know 30 people but I, I highly recommend it um, I think there's like an application process because there's you know so few spots but uh, I, I greatly encourage anybody who's you know getting into offline or peer-to-peer here or anything like that to to apply and get involved in the community does that bump up against any of the jsconfu stuff i don't know when those dates are yeah it's, it's right week before, before. jsconfu okay yeah do it all well, I, not right before it's like the weekend before yeah. um Berlin's but, yeah. pretty fun yeah, also yeah, yeah. during eurovision <laughs> really? oh but you'll all be <laughs> offline so you won't be able to know who wins yeah. No, I mean there there is internet at the camp. <laughs> if you need something to do while in that week in Berlin, there's this really good uh Vietnamese noodle place called uh Monsieur Vuong that I would suggest you go to. That's my actual project of the week. <laughs> they have really good pho. They they throw star anise in their pho and it's really good. Um, yeah. That's a good spot. There's also an amazing dumpling place that has this dish called the stripes of beef, which are just these thin slices of beef with like uh, it, it i don't know what they're doing with some kind of it's like szechuan pepper and a few other things and some chili oil but it's like one of the best dishes that you 
they'll ever have. Uh, yeah, I actually think that's a translation error. It's actually tripes of beef, and those are intestines. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> it's. I, I think they meant stripes. They're strips of beef, and they put an e in there because they actually <laughs> did mess up the translation a little bit. I actually don't remember like anything special that I ate when I was in Berlin last time. So donor kebab. I'll have to listen to your advice this time. Eat donor kebab at four in the morning. Yeah, I guess you didn't hang out with me enough if you didn't have any amazing yeah. food. That's pretty much all I do there. I've never been in <laughs> Berlin while you were there. So right there we go. Are 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 all three of us going to be at JS U actually? I yeah, I'll be there. Did you say yes or no, Alex? have a human child to take care of now and it might be another year before i get out there okay so you're bringing the child with you mm-hmm. yeah yeah that's the plan <laughs> okay awesome yeah yeah so also js Conf U, i guess is a good pick it's a great conference awesome kind of tentpole event rachel yes okay i do have a pick uh, there's this, if you're interested in data visualization uh, with D3 and other really cool stuff, there's two women. Um, one lives in San Francisco, the other lives in Amsterdam, and they have this project called Data Sketches where each month they are taking different topics and uh, experimenting with data viz through exploration of how to show information based off of each of those topics. And I saw um, one of them speak in January. It was uh, Shirley. Shirley Wu is one of them. And the other woman is Nadia Bremer. I hope I'm saying those names right. Um, it's just really, really interesting uh, to see all the different ways that you can take data and have it be informational. Like they have how many months now? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. There's seven months so far. And um, they each have the same uh, like topic for each month except they take it in totally different directions. So, um, you know, like one month they picked books and what one of the women did versus what the other women did is completely different. And it's super cool to see the differences of how they made stuff. And I'll post the link in the chat. Awesome. Awesome. There've been so many good like sketches and drawings of rad stuff lately. Yeah. Mariko, like, you know, killed it again with some sketches about shot one. Those were great. Yeah, I'm a fan of this trend. <laughs> it's definitely positive. There's so many people that are more like visual learners. So it's I think it's it's more interesting than looking at just like a pie chart or a bar graph uh, when you especially when you are utilizing D3 and you're able to make that information interactive so you can see like data sets changing over time or how certain information is relational towards other things that you have in your set. I, I It's really awesome. And it's that's like, I think uh, OpenVizConf is coming up too and they just exclusively deal with this kind of stuff. Yeah. Also, CSVConf is coming up. We were talking about DAT and visualizations, and <laughs> that's actually the, a nice intersection. CSV is also a bunch of cool visualizations like OpenVizConf, but it's also about uh, small data, basically. Yeah, I'm, I, I think it, uh, CSVConf is May 2nd to the 3rd, and OpenVizConf is April 24th and 25th. Sweet. On that note, uh, we'll leave it there. Rate us on iTunes. Thank you, everybody. 
that's it for this episode of JS Party. Tune in live on Fridays at 3 p.m. U.S. Eastern at changelaw.com slash live. Follow us on Twitter. We're at JS Party FM. Join the community in Slack with us in real time during the show at the changelaw.com slash community. Special thanks to our sponsors, Rollbar and TopTile. Also, thanks to our bandwidth partner, Fastly.com and Breakmaster Cylinder for the awesome beats. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.